We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. Can the actions of one county have an impact on the global effects of climate change? The dire situation globally it really demands that every individual do all that they can. Um, but when you think about the fact that Baltimore County is a jurisdiction of over 850,000 people, collectively, that's a pretty significant impact, not just to our region and our state, but, but to the country. That's Baltimore County Executive Johnny Oshevsky. Last year, the jurisdiction set a goal to complete enough renewable energy projects to generate the equivalent of 100 percent of the county's baseline electricity demand by 2026. WIPR reporter John Lee is following some of these projects with a new series on climate change and Baltimore County. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Sheila. Nice to be here. And Jennifer Aosa, Baltimore County's Chief Sustainability Officer, was recently named Oshevsky's Director of Government Affairs. Before joining county government, Aosa was Executive Director of Blue Water Baltimore. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. John, you've aired two stories about environmental action and climate change in Baltimore County. Yesterday, we heard how the Turner Station neighborhood in southeast Baltimore County is dealing with chronic flooding. And this morning, we heard about green energy being produced at Eastern Sanitary Landfill in White Marsh. What did you see at the landfill? Well, the landfill, I I thought, was really interesting. It's one of those uh, field trips I've wanted to take for a long time and finally got there. And what they're doing is basically sucking the methane out of the landfill. The methane is created by by the garbage that is decomposing. And they're using it, and I'm no chemist, so I'm not going to be able to explain to you how the, there are chemical reactions that happen there, but they're able to uh, create uh, power. They have four generators out there. and uh, So they suck out the methane gas mm-hmm. and use it as a fuel. Exactly right. To generate electricity. Exactly right. And they're able to use it to... Um, run the landfill out there, but then they have a lot left over, like around 95% or so, which they then put up on the grid. And uh, what they told me there was that that's enough to uh, run 2,400 homes uh, annually. They're putting electricity on the grid. Yes. Jen, how much of a problem is methane gas for the environment? Methane is one of the more powerful uh, greenhouse gases. You know, we tend to think about climate change and talk about our carbon footprint, but methane gas is about uh, 20 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So initiatives like what's happening at the Eastern Sanitary Landfill can have a more uh, near-term impact on um, all of our efforts to reduce greenhouse gases because it is such uh, so much more potent than carbon dioxide. John's story, Jen, also mentions solar arrays and hybrid vehicles. What are some other renewable energy projects underway in Baltimore County? Our biggest effort has been focused on um, getting solar arrays uh, constructed on two closed landfill properties. So in, in two different parts of the county, where there used to be active waste disposal. Um, Those make just the best kinds of places to put large-scale solar arrays. And so we hope to be breaking ground on the first one this spring um, at the former Parkton uh, landfill. And then hopefully, uh, if we can get all all of the logistics worked out, 
Another solar field would go at the Herndon Sanitary Landfill. We are also looking at county buildings to see whether or not rooftops can handle uh, the weight of solar panels so we can begin generating solar in that way, both for use within the building and then also uh, if there's extra, it can go back on onto the grid as well. And then the second big effort that the county executive is really committed to is reducing the the carbon intensity of our our transportation. This is our fleet of on-road vehicles. That could be everyone from parking enforcement to the trucks they drive at the landfill, as well as some of our bigger machinery and our handheld machinery. So I'm really proud to say that hopefully later this month, supply chain willing, we will take possession of our first six fully electric vehicles that will be used by our parking enforcement. Um, And we have a plan to uh, continue to replace aging vehicles with electric vehicles or high efficiency hybrid vehicles, depending on the need of the, the given department. This is On the Record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cast speaking with Jennifer A. Osa, Baltimore County's Chief Sustainability Officer, and with WIPR reporter John Lee. We're talking about local actions to prevent further damage to the climate and to address the consequences we're already experiencing. Jen, projects like solar arrays or fleets of hybrid cars cost a lot up front. How do you justify to taxpayers that this is a good investment? You know, I'm really glad you asked that question, Sheila, because they don't have to. So, for example, the the solar arrays that we are working to install in the county, we are doing um, a partnership called a, a power purchase agreement where the solar developer will own and operate the the solar panels for 25 years on county property um, and will guarantee our electricity rate for 25 years. So that rate may be a little bit higher um, in the first couple of years, but most of us who pay an electricity bill recognize that energy prices are on the rise. And so what the county is actually doing is locking in a lower price over the course of 25 years for that energy. I'll also say that uh, electric vehicles uh, do not necessarily have to cost more. We are certainly not purchasing, you know, high-end electric, you know, Cadillacs. We are purchasing Chevy Bolts, which have been on the road for several years now, have a very good track record, and do not cost uh, very much more than the Honda Civics they're replacing. The other thing that I think is important for your audience to understand is that while the initial initial purchase price may be a couple thousand dollars more, the ongoing operation and maintenance costs of an electric vehicle are significantly less. We don't have to purchase you know, $4 a gallon gasoline. Um, we can plug into an electric vehicle um, recharging uh, center and uh, probably fill that, that vehicle up for 5 to $7. 
Um, and the, the maintenance is much less as well because frankly, electric vehicles have fewer moving parts. And so they don't require quite as much maintenance. So we've done the fiscal analysis and over the long term, the life of these vehicles will actually save money. John, in your piece yesterday, you spoke with residents of Turner Station about chronic flooding in their neighborhood. They were looking at a storm drain. Any day, any given day, it's filled like this. Not just because it's raining. And it's filled like that, and then when it does rain, it's just on top of it, and then you get flooding. You can't see the sidewalk. You can't see any of this. And and the day after, you know what you see? You see a lot of trash that's come down. Debris, feces, tall, everything, it just, (sighs) there's nowhere to live. John, what's going on in Turner Station? Well, the people who live in Turner Station, actually, uh, Jen, I spoke to her before I went out there, and they all point to the same thing, which is that you have aging infrastructure there. You have pipes that were doing the job 50 years ago, but now things have changed. Uh, Climate change is causing more of those kind of intense downpours that can overwhelm um, aging pipes. And it's not unique to Turner Station. Uh, There are other parts of the county, other parts of of, pick your locality that have the same problems. And and getting in there and replacing what's there, it's very expensive. So then you start getting into the cost of climate change, how much it's going to cost in the long run uh, for localities, but also for people, too, who have to make some adjustments to their lives to to deal with rising waters. And, you know, I, I would be I would want to hasten to say that flooding is nothing new in Turner Station. If you've ever been there, it's right on the water. So they get flooding. But what the residents will tell you is that over the last 10, 20, 30 years, it's gotten worse. They're seeing it more often and the water is higher on flooding. Jen Iosa, Baltimore County is working with the Army Corps of Engineers on a solution. Tell us briefly about that. Many of our coastal communities, like Turner Station, you know, exist at a low elevation as it is. And those that have drainage infrastructure, it is very old and it's very flat. And so it does not function the way it was intended. So a little more than a year ago, we worked with the Army Corps of Engineers and they did um, basically a a modeling study of the way that water moves or doesn't move um, in the Turner Station community. And they looked at what that is going to look like in uh, 30 years and 50 years down the road with projected increases in precipitation and sea level. And what they found is that some of these areas that John mentioned in his piece, um, Sollers Point Road is is a, a perfect example, are going to continue to see heightened flooding. And so the Corps of Engineers modeled a couple of large scale um, interventions. I, I, I recall their, their project manager mentioning a, a pumping station. And one of the things the county is, is trying to do to complement those efforts is to look at where within the community we may be able to reduce the amount of runoff that's actually created that needs to go into the pumps, the pipes, et cetera. 
And so we are looking to see where we might deploy green stormwater infrastructure. That could be as simple as removing pavement, planting trees, or creating smaller areas on the landscape where water can flow instead of all being um, directed into a single pipe or a single pipe network. We believe that ultimately the solutions for communities like Turner Station and elsewhere, the solutions really ha- really going to have to be um, a combination of gray and green infrastructure and maybe other tools like flood proofing uh, doors and windows or elevating structures there's going to be an entire menu that we're going to have to look at and work with the community to determine what is going to be the best set of solutions to meet the residents' needs. Where will the county find the money for this kind of infrastructure? Well, it, we're, we're looking at that too. Uh, candidly, two years ago, uh, the State General Assembly passed authorizing language that would allow counties to develop what are called resilience authorities. Anne Arundel County and Annapolis created one and Charles County has also created one. Baltimore County is beginning to look uh, seriously at what a resilience authority may be able to provide in terms of ongoing uh, revenue streams, ongoing opportunities for for grants or for borrowing that could be dedicated to the kinds of projects that many of our communities are going to need over the next several years. John, what did you hear from residents of Turner Station about whether the the burdens of climate change fall more heavily on communities of color? Well, they certainly feel that they have been ignored over the decades. And they will also point out that there are communities nearby, uh, white majority communities, that they feel are getting their problems solved more quickly. And they just sort of wonder why. And they and they do think that perhaps it's because they are a, an historically black neighborhood. I talked to the county executive about that. County Executive Oshevsky says, Absolutely, it is true that historically they have been ignored. But he's he's quick to add that uh, his administration is trying to address those issues now. He points to that uh, Army Corps of Engineers study uh, that Jen mentioned. So what the county executive would say is that, yes, they've been ignored, but we are trying to do something with it now. Jen, very briefly before we go, I, I mentioned the county's goal is to generate the equivalent of 100% of Baltimore County's baseline electricity demand through renewable energy sources. That's the county government's demand, right? Yes. Will the county meet that goal, 2026? We may not meet the goal by 2026, but we are committed to developing and facilitating the development of that amount of renewable energy because we believe that it's the right thing to do, even if it takes us a few more years to do it. Well, I wish you luck, and I'm grateful to you for talking to us about it. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, John. Thank you. Jennifer Ayosa is Baltimore County's Chief Sustainability Officer. WIPR reporter John Lee covers Baltimore County. 
At the On the Record page at WYPR.org, we have links to his recent stories about local efforts to address climate change. Short break on the record. When we're back, reversing decades of forest loss in Maryland. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Maryland is still losing forests, but at a slower rate than two decades ago. That slowdown presents the opportunity to move from loss to gain by investing in planting and protecting existing forests. A new study conducted by the Harry R. Hughes Center for Agroecology, the Chesapeake Conservancy, and the University of Vermont looks at how the forest and tree canopy has changed across Maryland. Here to talk about the findings is Catherine Everts, executive director of the Harry R. Hughes Center for Agroecology. The center is a nonprofit affiliated with the University of Maryland College Park and the University System of Maryland. Kate Everts, welcome to the show. Thank you. Many people refer to an area of trees in their neighborhood as a forest. What actually counts as a forest? So that's actually an interesting question because uh, this study, we use three different data sets to look at forest cover and uh, tree canopy in Maryland. And each one of those um, data sets defines forest differently. So, so <laughs> it really depends on the data set that you follow. One data set that we're really excited about is this um, new released, very high resolution land use land cover data set. And for example, it defines forest as at least one acre of land, and it has to be 240 feet wide. And how do you measure forest area? Where, where does the data in this report come from? That new new high-resolution data is um, it's um, aerial imagery and remote sensing data with a tool called LIDAR. And it actually is able to look at uh, changes at a one-meter scale which to give you some perspective, the previous data set that we used, and we use in this study as well, because it's very good for answering some specific questions about forest versus tree canopy, but it it was only able to resolve using aerial imagery at a 30 meter scale. So you can see that we've really improved our ability to differentiate between different land use and land cover. And that's why this new data set is very valuable in helping um, the state, but also jurisdictions, counties, even, even towns and cities could look at this data and be able to see what kinds of things are going on in terms of changes in land use and um, forest and tree canopy. Where has the greatest loss of forest occurred in Maryland? The greatest loss is really in central Maryland. As a matter of fact, there's two counties that they they accounted for more than 50% of our tree canopy loss, and they were Montgomery and Prince George's counties. Um, and five counties actually make up about 73% of the loss. So rather than looking overall at Maryland, we can really um, focus in on where where the greatest loss is and, and look at causes. And we can even tell what what that forest transitioned to. When forest is lost, what, what are the primary causes? 
I think it's not too surprising when you think that that uh, Maryland's population has increased 17% since 2000, that most of the loss that we see is associated with development. Um, so from that 2013 to 2018 period, the majority of loss um, was associated with development, although we did see little less than half um, of the loss was to either agricultural land, wetlands, or natural lands, or some other kind of um, land use that was not associated with development. And those that that could be a result of change in natural succession or timber harvest, where we can't detect the regrowth yet of the trees that have been um, harvested. As Kate Everts, Executive Director of the Harry R. Hughes Center for Agroecology, on the record on WYPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about a new study of Maryland's forest and tree canopy. So the good news is that in the last two decades, the rate of forest loss has slowed down. How much has it slowed? So we are actually approaching our goal of no net loss. In 2013, there was a Forest Preservation Act passed in Maryland, which set the goal of no net forest loss. And it wanted to maintain the state's existing forest cover at 40%, which is what it estimated it was at the time. Um, and we're approaching that goal. We're we're still losing slightly, but the, the rate of loss has drastically reduced. And we're even seeing opportunities where we think we can um, either by, you know, by planting or by um, preserving the health of the forest where we can uh, get to the point where we may have forest gain. Well, what's what's behind the, the decline in the rate of loss? So, of course, we have uh, strong, strong policies um, and incentives at the federal state level to to decrease the rate of loss. So for example, we have um, federal programs that that incentivize certain conservation practices like planting um, trees in riparian buffer areas that would be at the edges of the um, streams. We have the Forest Conservation Act from 1991 actually has provisions to try to help um, mit- minimize the loss of trees from development. So there's policies in place that incentivize or require that um, when development occurs that developers either plant on site or if that's not possible, they they have to plant offsite to make up for some of the trees that they've lost. So that also helps reduce the rate of loss um, of, of tree canopy and forest. Back up for me. Why should we care? about forest loss, what are the consequences? Wow, so uh, trees provide so many ecosystem services. Uh, They improve water filtration, they reduce water pollution, they provide stormwater mitigation, which is very important in many areas in Maryland. Trees sequester carbon, they protect against sea level rise. In urban areas, they can mitigate the urban heat island effect. Uh, we know they improve air quality, and of course, they provide wildlife habitat. They have just so many benefits. And if you wanted to put a dollar value on it, uh, somebody estimated that forest and wetlands in Maryland alone contribute over $3 billion a year in flood prevention and stormwater mitigation. The report notes that 
hundreds of thousands of trees were planted in Maryland by government and conservation groups between 2018 and 2021. Can we plant our way out of forest loss? I think planting alone is important, but not it's not sufficient. We have to make sure that we protect the forests and the tree canopy that we have, and not just protect the extent that we have, but it's very important to protect the health of it. One one finding in our study was that we're seeing increased fragmentation and that there are some um, health concerns with invasive species on on forests. So, so yes, tree planting is important and we have to do it, but I think those other two uh, avenues are equally important. We have to make sure we preserve what we have and that we um, maintain the health of our forests. I'm not sure I understand fragmentation. So that would be loss of part of a forest, but we still have part of it? Right. So it could happen if you um, uh, if you have a forested area and part of it gets harvested or developed, then the two parcels, instead of being classified as forest, would be tree canopy. And we know that larger tracts of forest, bigger land areas are better. They provide better ecosystem services. Um, and they're less... Uh, susceptible to having um, damage from invasive species because some invasive species uh, tend to cause the most damage at the edges of forests. Thanks for talking to us about this. Thank you. Kate Everts is executive director of the Harry R. Hughes Center for Agroecology. At the On the Record page at WIPR.org, we have a link to the report and to a webinar about the report's findings. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow.